I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Can you see the finish line? We've been in this epistle for quite some time now, but we do see the finish line. We see that uh, we, we have just a few more weeks in this epistle, and I'm sure we'll be finishing it up very soon. And we come now to 1 Corinthians 15, continuing on with this masterful uh, unveiling, unfolding explanation, propagation of the doctrine of the resurrection. Paul has been hammering this out for us, and we come now to verse 35. We find in verse 35 that there is a, a shift in the, in the thought process of the text as Paul will now go on from discussing the fact of the resurrection to discussing a description of the nature of the resurrection. And I'm going to take by way of a title, Raised in Glory. Raised in Glory. And I want us to consider this morning 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35, all the way through verse 49. So we'll look at a larger section this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 35. These are the words of God. But some man will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Thou fool! That which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body which shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or of some other grain, but God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him. And to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of fishes, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another of glory of the stars, for one star differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a spiritual body, or there is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written the first man, Adam, was made a living soul, the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. In the Christian life, your preaching diet 
is analogous to your food diet. In the same way that your body needs to consume a variety of foods to maintain your well-being, you also need a healthy diversity in the preaching you consume to maintain the nourishment of your soul. Sometimes you have to eat foods that may not taste the best, but they're really good for you, right? Uh, children, do you, do you like to eat Brussels sprouts? I can tell by Maddie's face that she does not like to eat Brussels sprouts, but why does mommy and daddy make you eat Brussels sprouts? Because they're good for you, which, you know, I love Brussels sprouts, by the way. I never had that problem. But sometimes you, you have an abundance of food that falls into the category of being pleasant to the taste buds, but detrimental to your health. A lot of foods in that category, right? And if you want preaching that entertains, makes you happy, but imparts no spiritual blessing, that isn't hard to find, is it? You can find that kind of preaching all over the place. This, however, is a category that we need to stay away from, both in regards to food and preaching. Don't eat food that, at least don't eat a lot of food that imparts no nourishment. It just tastes good. It's a good way to live a short, unhealthy life. Well, if you want to live a short, unhealthy spiritual life, then just keep listening to preaching that doesn't actually bless your soul. It just makes you happy. But in the kind providence of God, there is also a category of foods that are healthy and delicious. They don't just taste good. They are good. They're good for your health and they're good for your enjoyment. By God's grace, this category is also a staple in a healthy, well-rounded preaching diet. Every sermon shouldn't feel like a kick in the teeth. Every sermon shouldn't feel like a sledgehammer crashing down on your toes. Sometimes God's people need to be rebuked and exhorted, and sometimes we need a divine wake-up call. But if you berate the sheep week after week, you're going to produce a flock that is beaten up and worn down and discouraged. And so it is good to hear a word from God that is especially uplifting and encouraging, that contains truth, that just gives us joy for the right kind of reason. I'm not talking about a shallow, superficial, motivational message that makes you feel good about yourself. I'm talking about a message from God that causes you to direct your attention to the wonderful things that he has already done and will yet do for his people in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I hope that your soul becomes full on Christ this morning. Because we have such a message in our text. As I began studying this passage, something stood out to me. There is not a single imperative in these 15 verses. There is no command in this text. There's nothing for you to do in this passage. The only thing you can do with this text is believe it and bask in the glory of the truth 
it propounds. This text is a beautiful depiction of what our resurrected bodies will be like. This text tells us what we will become when Christ returns and raises us from the dead. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this text should fill you with joy as you eagerly anticipate his second coming and your resurrection. And that's my charge to you this morning as we dive into this text. As your pastor, as the man ordained to preach the word of God to you and care for your soul, I command you to enjoy this text. (laughs) Rejoice because of it, Christian. Praise the Lord on account of it. And I will even go so far as to say that if you're not happy by the end of this, if this text does not give you joy, either one of two things is terribly wrong. Either I have failed to preach this text as it ought to be preached, or you're not a Christian. And the message of Christ's return, and the message of the resurrection from the dead, and the message of death brings you fear instead of comfort. And if that's you, let me say at the outset, repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and come and join us in the joy of looking forward to his coming and our final transformation. As we work our way through this text, I want you to see three things that pertain to the nature of your resurrected body. That's what this text is all about. The body that you will have and that you will live in for all eternity. And if you're a Christian, again, that should excite you. But before I can show you these three things, I need to set the stage with verse 35. So look at verse 35. Don't worry, I have an alliterated outline, but I need to set the stage with verse 35, okay? Paul says in verse 35, but some man will say, Paul has for the preceding 34 verses, you know this if you've been here at this church through these sermons in 1 Corinthians. Paul has been propounding the doctrine of the resurrection and proving the certainty that it will happen. As he comes to verse 35, he makes a shift and he begins to explain the nature of the resurrection. And he does something in this verse that is very common in his writings and that is very Pauline. He anticipates and answers the objections of those who would oppose his teaching. He does that all throughout his epistles. If you've read them, you know what I'm talking about. Read Romans. Read Romans 9. That's all that chapter is, is it's Paul just anticipating and responding to the objections of those who would oppose him. And so he says, but some man will say. And you could say it's a hypothetical man, but really, Paul's saying that those in the Corinthian church, I know what you're going to say to what I'm about to tell you. Those in the Corinthian church who denied the resurrection, did so because they failed to see how a physical body is compatible with the future glory of the eternal state. Notice he says, but some men will say, how are the dead raised up? And not, not in the sense of how could God do it. They didn't have any trouble believing that God had the power to do it. But, but what will be the nature of this resurrected body? In what way will he raise them up? And with what body do they come? Okay, those are two questions, but really it's just one objection. They, 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 they would say to Paul, um, your doctrine of the resurrection can't be true because there's no way 
Remember, they are influenced by Gnostic beliefs that teach that the body is evil, the body is inherently wicked and sinful, right? And they're saying, Paul, there's no way that in in glory, in the eternal state, that we're going to be in the presence of God in in our bodies. Now, such an incompatibility is true of our bodies in their present condition. You, you could not dwell in the presence of God in the body that you're in right now. But the false teachers in Corinth were evidently unaware of the radical change that is to take place with our bodies in the resurrection. And that's what this text is all about, the radical change that takes place in our bodies, the resurrection. Let me, let me say two things that sound contradictory, but they're true. Your body that goes into the grave is the same body that will come out of the grave, but those two bodies are not the same. Your body that goes into the grave is the same body that comes out of the grave, but those two bodies are not the same. And Paul will now explain how this is to be so. The false teachers in Corinth either didn't understand this or they just plainly refused to believe it, but it's no excuse for their rejection of the truth. See, it's important to understand that those questions in verse 35 are not honest questions. It's perfectly appropriate to ask honest questions, sincere questions, as you wrestle through the meaning of of Scripture, try to figure out what it means. It's, It's fine to ask the question, what will our resurrected bodies be like? That's a fine question to ask. But, but Paul is not dealing with honest, sincere people trying to understand the truth. Paul is dealing with mockers and scoffers who are rejecting the truth. They're the same kind of questions that the Jews would ask Jesus when they tried to trick him and trap him in his teachings. We know they're not honest questions. How do we know that? Well, because we already know that they're being asked by people who are denying the resurrection. It's like they're, they're asking the question, oh yeah, Paul, well, if your doctrine of the resurrection is true, then tell us, Paul, how can a dead body be raised and fit for the presence of God? Ha ha ha, Paul, we've got you. Right? That's, that's the, the nature of this question in verse 35. The underlying sin is the blasphemous arrogance of exalting your severely limited human reasoning over the authority of God's Word. See, here's a hard truth. Just because you don't have the ability to comprehend it doesn't mean it isn't true. See, the the natural man, he reads the Bible, and he, he comes to something that doesn't make sense to him, and he rejects it. His problem is that he has a far too high opinion of his own intellect. If you read something in the Bible and you don't understand it, let me help you out. The problem is not the Bible. The problem is you. The problem is your ignorance. The problem is your failure to be able to understand it. Okay? And that's my problem as well. The problem is not God. The problem is not the the validity of what God has said. And so Paul is saying... Just because you don't understand the resurrection doesn't mean that it isn't true. And so in verse 36, Paul, in his most loving, winsome, and tactful approach, replies to these people and says, Thou fool! 
It's the same people that he said last Sunday, stop it, <laughs> thou fool, I love it. And, and remember, what makes this person a fool is not that they don't understand the resurrection. Paul never speaks to saints this way. And, you know, pastors ought not speak to honest church members this way. If, if you don't understand something in the Bible, you're not a fool. That doesn't make you a fool. There's, there's, there's stuff in this Bible that all of us don't understand. What makes you a fool is that you think you've actually outsmarted God. These Corinthians thought that there's a silly little question about, well, with what body will it be raised up? That, that just overthrows the doctrine of the resurrection. This is a classic example. Have you ever seen this? A classic example of an unbeliever asking what they believe to be a gotcha question, but the reality is they just make themselves look like an idiot. That's what's going on here. And so Paul appropriately responds to them. But thankfully, he doesn't stop here. After exposing the foolishness of the one who would oppose the resurrection with such a silly objection, he goes on to unveil three characterizations of our resurrected body. And let me just say at the outset, while this text tells us a lot about the resurrected body, there is still remaining so much that we will simply never know until we get there. And so rather than endlessly speculate about what the Bible doesn't tell us, let us instead glory in the truth that it does reveal. And Paul's going to reveal the, the main things, the big picture of our resurrected body. So three things from this text that I want to show you about your resurrected body. And if you're a Christian, I'm talking about you, okay? So, three things. Number one, I want you to see their completion. The completion that is the resurrected body. Notice, middle of verse 36, after addressing the one who's asked the question, Paul goes on and he says, Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die. Paul begins his teaching by way of analogy. And really, most of this text this morning is in a, a series of analogies. He explains the nature of our resurrected body by appealing to the transformation of a seed into a plant. What happens when a seed is planted? Well, it has to die to itself. It must cease from being a seed in order for a plant to grow. And when the plant has grown, you cannot dig up the plant and find the seed from whence it came. The plant is continuous with, but very different from, the seed. The plant is the completion of the seed's existence. Well, the same is true of our resurrected bodies. See, disorganization is the necessary prerequisite for reorganization. You must first go into the grave in order to be raised from the grave. Your death must precede your resurrection. And, and you know, the, the silliness of their question was they were, they were kind of in a sense saying, well, Paul, how could a dead person be raised again? And Paul says, you fool, only a dead person could be raised again. But for the Christian... Your death is not the completion 
of your existence. Uh, 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 The purpose of a seed does not reach its completion when you plant it in the ground. That's only the beginning, you see. The final form of your being is not a departed spirit in heaven with the Lord and a dead body lying in the grave. The final form of your existence is dwelling in the presence of the Lord on the new heavens and the new earth in a resurrected body. So Paul goes on and he says, and that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain. You don't plant a plant. Does that make sense? I mean, this, this really is not that complicated of a passage. You don't plant a plant. You plant a seed. If you want to grow apples, you don't dig a ginormous hole and put an entire apple tree into the ground. No, you just dig a small hole and you plant some apple seeds into the ground. And so Paul is saying, you, you, the reason why you're having this whole hang-up about the resurrected bodies because you don't go into the grave with your resurrected body. You go into the grave as a seed. And the resurrected body that will come out of the grave on the last day is the completion of the growth and development of the plant. Paul says, It made chance of wheat or of some other grain, but God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. Okay? Do you know what kind of trees come from apple seeds? Apple trees. Right? Apple seeds don't grow anything but apple trees. And, and God is the one who has ordained all of these seeds to produce the plants that they will produce. And what Paul is saying here is that unless you have previous education and experience, you don't know what the plant is going to look like just by looking at the seed. Unless you have previously observed a specific seed turning into a specific plant, you would have no way of knowing what plant comes from what seed. Uh, I'll be the first to tell you that I don't know very much at all about gardening. Every vegetable I've ever eaten has been purchased from someone who grew it for me. Okay? If my wife sent me to the store to buy seeds for her garden... All my trust and confidence would be placed in the labels on the bag. And if there were no labels on the seeds and she sent me to buy tulips, I'd come home with turnips. I'd have no way of differentiating those seeds. Now, I can easily tell you the difference between tulips and turnips because I've experienced both of them. One is a pretty flower, and one is a tasty meal. But I have no idea how to identify or differentiate between tulip seeds and turnip seeds. But now, how foolish would I be if I looked at that bag of turnip seeds and went up to the cash register at Home Depot and said, These aren't tulips! These aren't turnips. These seeds will never produce turnip greens. Well, the man at Home Depot would say to me, thou fool, just because you don't understand it doesn't mean it isn't true. 
Just because you've never seen it doesn't mean it won't happen. Brothers and sisters, that is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians by way of this analogy. Just because you've never seen a resurrected, glorified body, just because you don't have an exhaustive understanding of how God will raise the dead and how God will glorify his people doesn't change the certainty of these things coming to pass. Listen, when I look at myself in the mirror, it is only by faith that I believe in the resurrection. Because I cannot understand how my sinful body, marred by the fall, with all of its defects and deformities, will ever be something fit for the presence of God. But even though I don't understand how it will happen, I believe it will happen because God has said so. My body, your body, is a seed waiting to be sown. And one day, my body will go into the ground, and what will come out of the ground will be the completion of God's harvest. God has ordained that turnip seeds turn into turnip plants, and God has ordained that the bodies of believers turn into glorified bodies of resurrected saints. We don't know all there is to know about our resurrected bodies but we do know that they will be transformed into something that is fitted for an eternal state of glory. They will be bodies suited for a place of unceasing bliss. They will be the completion of our redemption and the culmination of our bodily existence. So I want you to see first their completion. And I hope you can say amen that the body that you're in now is not the completion of your bodily existence. There's something better that is waiting for you. But secondly, I want you to see their contrast. Their contrast. That is, the contrast between your natural body here and your resurrected body to come. Notice Paul says in verse 39, he says, All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. Uh, if you notice what Paul's doing here, he's actually appealing to the days of creation and the created order. Uh, he mentions plants in verses 36 and 38, and now he's talking about humans and animals and fish and birds. And next he's going to start talking about stars and other planets and other, uh, uh, other created things in our universe. And, and all he's seeking to prove here is that there are differing degrees of glory in the created order. That, that, that in this life, we are able to recognize that there is a differing quality and quantity of intrinsic value in created things. And this is really apparent to anyone with common sense. Now, pardon my graphic illustration here, okay? What would you say about someone who used a tool to amplify the rays of the sun to burn alive a box of kittens? You'd say, that person is a psychopathic maniac, right? He's burning alive, a he's, he's got this tool that magnifies the rays of the sun and he's burning alive a box of kittens. He's insane. 
It's animal cruelty. But how many of you used to roast ants with a magnifying glass when you were a kid? I did, you know, until I caught my pants on fire. You burned a hole in my pants. And then mom said, don't do that anymore, you know. The point is, unless you work for PETA, you look at those two things very differently. Why? Why? Because kittens have a greater glory than ants. That's a very, it's a very simple concept for us to understand. Don't overthink the, the illustration. The point I'm simply trying to make is that God has created the world with ingrained natural laws that assign differing levels of dignity and value to different creatures. I mean, we, we, look, at, we look at certain things in the created order. Right? You, you know, there's, uh, there's some nice things to see in, in Tennessee. You drive over the bridge, come into Paris, and you see the, the, the lake, and you see the, the scenery, and it's very beautiful. But then you go to the Grand Canyon, and you're just blown away. Because there are differing qualities. Same God who made it all, but differing qualities of glory in the created order. Sometimes man understands these natural laws. Sometimes he doesn't, right? Sometimes we actually counteract the natural laws that God has created our world with. A horrible example of that would be the fact that an American citizen can go to jail and be fined thousands of dollars for damaging the eggs of a bald eagle, but yet that same person can legally kill their own children in the womb. Well, what's the Christian response to that? Well, we would say that bald eagles should be protected I don't think anybody should be damaging their eggs for sport or for fun. But has not God assigned an infinitely greater value to human life? That's all Paul is trying to prove here. Okay? And then he says, there are also celestial bodies. There's one glory of the sun, one glory of the stars. So he, he moves out beyond earth. Uh, if you look at the stars and the moon and the sun, which one has the greatest glory? Well, the sun does, right? It's the biggest, it's the brightest, it's the hottest. And certainly, it has a greater impact on our earthly lives. And then he says in verse 42, So also is the resurrection from the dead. Again, Paul's argument is very simple. Just as there is a difference in the glory of created things in this age, so too will there be a difference in the glory of this age and the age to come. We don't fully see it. We don't understand it. We can't imagine it, but it will be there. The problem of those denying the resurrection in the Corinthian church was that they didn't have faith to see the glory of the resurrected body. They said, we don't believe in the resurrection because there's absolutely no way that our bodies could ever dwell in the physical presence of Almighty God. And Paul replied, you're exactly right. That's why God is going to change your body and renew your body and transform your body and glorify your body. And just because you can't understand that, there's no reason for you to reject it. The God who made all things by the power of his voice and pronounced them all very good will have no trouble renewing and glorifying everything he made and removing everything that is bad. So in verses 42 through 44, Paul highlights 
four particulars of the contrast between our bodies in this age and our bodies in the resurrection. He presents us with a big picture view of the differences between your body now and your body when you're raised from the dead. Listen, I I don't know and I don't care if I'll be able to walk through walls and fly and all of these other things. That's not what's important. All I want to know is that whatever body I will have, it will be a body that enables me to live forever in the presence of God and worship Him for all eternity. And that's the kind of body that is described. There's four particulars here. There's four of them. Notice, beginning in verse 42. He said, number one, it is sown in corruption, but it is raised in incorruption. I know that some people believe themselves to be invincible, but the truth is that all of our bodies are subject to decay and destruction. From the moment you were born, you began to die. The Bible says that though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. And oh, the inward man is renewed day by day. And I'm glad for that. I'm glad that God strengthens our souls and strengthens our spirit. Oh, but the outward man does indeed perish, does it not? In our spirits, we go stronger as the the Lord sanctifies us, but in our bodies, we grow weaker and feebler as nature runs its course. Uh, God decided that it would be fitting for me to be uh, a living illustration of this this morning. I woke up with just this terrible head cold, and I couldn't help but be slightly amused as I was thinking over this text, coughing and spitting up all kinds of green stuff, thinking, I'm going to go preach on how corruptible the body is this morning it's corruptible in this life you are susceptible to all kinds of illnesses diseases pains deformities disabilities infections gross stuff (laughs) uncomfortable stuff embarrassing stuff that happens to your body you have a corruptible body you are perishable Right now, you, you're like a a carton of milk. You have an expiration date on you. And one day, you're going to hit that expiration date. And when you hit that expiration date, you're going to turn sour and you're going to die. And when you die, your loved ones will take your corruptible body and plant it in the ground. That's all you can do with a dead corpse. Ah, but the body that will be raised, the Bible says, will be an incorruptible body. Not only will your resurrected body not be corrupted, it will not even be corruptible. Incorruptible. Not possible to be corrupted because it won't be subjected to the effects of sickness, injury, and decay that are all brought about by sin. See, it's important that we have a biblical (coughs) perspective on sickness and death. Don't forget that God works all things together for our good. Sickness in this life is a tool of God's affliction that grows us in prayer and patience and holiness. It's good for us to be afflicted every now and again. And death 
though our great enemy, death is ultimately the very thing that God uses to make us ready for the resurrection. As one pastor of mine used to say, cheer up, Christian, you're going to die soon. See, I want to live as long as the Lord ordains for me to live. But I'm not afraid of death. Jesus has removed the sting of death for me. Do you know what death is for me? It's gain. I gain something when I die. The presence of God. To be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. My death will usher my soul into the very presence of God. And the very next thing on my calendar will be the resurrection. Just as the seed must be lowered into the ground and cease from being a seed in order for a plant to sprout, so too must you, unless you are alive at his coming. It's the only category of people that this text doesn't really necessarily directly apply to. They're still going to receive a glorified body. Unless you're alive at his coming, you must be lowered into the ground. You must die in your corruptible body that you might be raised in an incorruptible body. Secondly, second feature of this new resurrected body, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Do you see that in the text? Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. You know, we live in a uh, in a day, I don't think the human mind has necessarily changed, but social media and different things give us an opportunity to vaunt our vanity um, in which people think that their bodies are just so glorious and they want to put them on display for the world to see and they want to take picture after picture and video after video and put it out there for the world to gawk at. But let me tell you something. The most beautiful Handsome, magnificent human specimen in this life is a dishonorable body. But that body which is to come will be raised in glory. There will be a complete absence in all that is repulsive in the resurrection body because we will be adorned in the beauty of holiness. I I could not put it any better than Gill John Gill commenting on what it means to have a dishonorable body and then what it means to be raised in glory. He says this of a dishonorable body. He said, quote, Our body is generated and brought forth in a manner we are ashamed of. It is conceived in sin, shapen in iniquity. It is unclean and born of flesh. And when born is in such a condition as is to the loathing of it, Some members of it, I love this part, some members of it are less honorable and so uncomely as to always need a covering. Amen? Mm -hmm. Amen. I mean, there's some people that are starting to forget that, but there's some parts of you that just need to be covered all the time. (laughs) You have a dishonorable body. It is subject to various blemishes, defects, and imperfections, and few bodies are without one or another and liable to many injuries and affronts. That's what it means to have a dishonorable body. But notice, Gill says this about being raised in glory. He says, quote, in perfect beauty and comeliness, without the least blemish or defect or imperfection, nor will there be any part of it that will occasion shame. Think about that. 
There will be no part of your body that will occasion shame. Your physical body. It will be metamorphosed and fashioned like to the glorious body of Christ. It will shine as the sun and be as the brightness of the firmament. What an absolutely marvelous thought. If you struggle with body image, if you don't like the way God made you or or you don't like what sin has turned you into, don't worry, your resurrected body will be glorious. You say, does that mean I'm going to be six foot two with a full head of hair and a six pack of abs? I have absolutely no idea. But whatever you think, whatever you think you would look like to make you glorious is not even close to how glorious you will be on that day. Why? Why? Why why is God going to make us so beautiful and glorious? Because we, brothers and sisters, are the bride of Christ. He's not going to have an ugly bride. Aren't you glad that our bridegroom is going to adorn us in such a way that our presence, the sight of us will be comely to him? He will find us gorgeous. See, in this life, the only way God can look at you with pleasure is if he looks at you and sees Jesus. But in that body, on that day, he will actually behold you your body as a thing of delight because you will be raised in glory. Thirdly, notice he goes on and he says, it is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Something that brings me mild to moderate annoyment depending on how I feel on that particular day is when I share with someone the busyness of life and they say something to me that sounds like, well, haha, you're young, you can handle it. And I know what they mean by that, but let me assure you, God has allowed me to have an awareness of how weak my body is. As you get older, you may feel your weakness more and more, but the truth is that you were always weak. You were born in weakness, you live in weakness, and you're going to die in weakness. In fact, for most people, the the two weakest times of their lives are the periods just after their birth and just before their death. Nothing is weaker than a newborn baby that can do absolutely nothing for itself. And nothing is weaker than uh, someone on their deathbed that is incapable sometimes of even breathing on their own. You may, by God's grace, experience a little bit of strength in the middle. (laughs) But brother, you're weak. Sister, you're weak. Go to the gym all you want. You're still going to be weak. Work out all you want. You're still going to be weak. That's what our bodies are. They're weak, earthly tabernacles. They may hold up for 60, 70, 80 years by the blessings of God, but eventually the weakness will win. And nothing will be more weak than a dead corpse in the grave. Oh, but the Bible says that we, though sown in weakness, we will be raised in power. We will have strength and energy and stamina and abilities that we cannot even begin to comprehend in this life. 
will worship the Lord and will never get tired. In the new creation, no one's falling asleep in church. I hope I get to preach there. There's no mental fatigue. But it won't just be physical power. It will be a power that is mental and emotional as well. You'll never be stressed out. You'll never experience anxiety and depression. You'll never feel like like you're just at a mental breaking point, like you just can't go on anymore. Some of you, that might be a very common feeling in your life. It won't be in the new heavens and the new earth. Mental strength, emotional strength that will enable you to, to be in constant fellowship with God and with all the saints. We won't have to go home and rest because we're tired. You'll be in a constant existence of learning more about God and you'll never get tired of it. You'll never want to take a break because you'll be living in the power of a resurrected body. And fourthly, Paul says in verse 44, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Natural simply means the body that you have in this life. This is your natural body, and we know what our natural body is like because we live in it. But what does it mean to have a spiritual body? Well, spiritual cannot mean immaterial. That would contradict everything that Paul has taught us thus far. A spiritual also does not mean religious. You know, like someone would say, I'm a spiritual person. I don't have the time to take you to all of the cross-references that would prove this, but when Paul speaks about the things that are spiritual, he is talking about the things that pertain to the Holy Spirit. Now, it's true that we have the Holy Spirit in this life. And I'm very thankful for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this life. But have you ever thought about the fact that in this life, our natural body is actually an enemy of the Spirit? Galatians 5.17 says, For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other. Now praise God for the Holy Spirit who is within us, indwelling us, fighting our sin, persevering us in holiness. I love the Spirit. I want to be guided by the Spirit. I want to be filled by the Spirit. Hey, I worship the Spirit because the Holy Spirit is God. But the fullness of the Holy Spirit that I will have in my resurrected body will far exceed anything I could ever know today. Because I will have a body that is designed to be the eternal dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And his ministry then will be so different than his ministry now. See, right now, the Spirit is fighting within me. There's a war going on inside of me. Christian, there's a war going on inside of you. And I don't always cooperate in that fight. I don't always yield to the Spirit like I should. I sin against him. I grieve him. But there will be no war in the resurrected body. The process of sanctification will be complete. The Spirit will have free reign over me, soul and body. No opposition. No besetting sin. No indwelling corruption. And again, I, I can't stand here and tell you what that's going to be like, but I know that it will be glorious. This is the contrast between our bodies now and our bodies in the resurrection. Now we are corruptible, dishonorable, weak, 
and natural, but in the resurrection, we will be incorruptible, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. Very quickly, the third and final thing I want you to see about your resurrected body is their Christ-likeness. Their Christ-likeness. See, the chief reason for the superiority of our resurrected bodies is that they will be bodies likened unto the body of our risen, ascended, and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 45, Paul says, and so it is written, he's going to quote for us Genesis 2-7, because as you should, Paul believed in a literal historical Adam. And so he says, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul, but the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. There was a time when Adam wasn't. And and God took dirt from the ground and he breathed into it life and he made Adam a living soul. Adam has his origins from the dust. But the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. See, our Lord Jesus Christ never had a beginning. He is the eternal Son of God. But there was a time in which he became our incarnate Redeemer. When did he become a quickening spirit? When was he made a quickening spirit? Well, Adam became a living soul by creation. Christ became a life-giving spirit by accomplishing our redemption. He did what Adam failed to do. See, Adam was our first representative, and he was given a test in the Garden of Eden. And had he passed the test in the Garden, he would have received life, and he would have given life to all of his posterity. But you know the story. Adam failed the test. He sinned in the garden. And instead of receiving life from him, we received death from him. But God in his grace, praise the Lord, he sent us the last Adam. He sent us the Lord Jesus Christ who entered in to that same test. But he passed with flying colors. He did what Adam failed to do, and he secured eternal life for all who are united to him. Notice verse 46, he says, Howbeit that was not first which was spiritual, but that which is natural. See, Adam was not created in a glorified state. Adam was created in a body fit for this present world. And and what Paul is simply saying here is that before you get a glorified body, you have to have a natural body. I love the way the the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it. In chapter 7, in paragraph 2, it says, The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. The life promised to Adam was not just life in the garden, but eternal life. Had Adam obeyed God in the garden, he would have been glorified. He would have been confirmed in his holiness and he would have been given a glorified body. But he fell in the garden and oh, how miserable was his fall. And so Paul says in verse 47, the first man is of the earth, earthy. I love that. That's what we are. We're earthy. You could read it dusty, (laughs) dirty. We come from the dirt. But the second man is the Lord from heaven. Adam was earthy, 
And we're earthy because we descend from him. We receive our natural bodies from him. But the second man is the Lord from heaven. It's a shame that the critical text omits the words, the Lord, in verse 47. The second man is not just any man. He's the Lord. The last Adam, the second man, the one who came from heaven and became man and accomplished our redemption and will come again to raise us from the dead. That man is the Lord from heaven. That man is the Son of God. That man is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he comes back, he will give us a body like his body. Notice in verse 48, as is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. If you come from Adam, you got Adam's body. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. Verse 48 teaches us, brothers and sisters, that we gain so much more in Christ than we ever lost in Adam. See, God did not redeem you to make you like Adam before the fall. God redeemed you to make you like Jesus Christ in glory. By his redeeming work, Christ is bringing us into conformity with ourselves or with himself. And our bodies will be the last thing to be conformed. He's not just the guarantee of our resurrection. He's the prototype of our resurrection. We will be raised like him. Here's a wonderful thought. When you are raised on the last day, everything about you will be perfectly like Jesus. Isn't that what we're striving for in the Christian life? Couldn't you really sum it up? What is the Christian life? Well, it's a life in which we live and we strive to be like Jesus. And brothers and sisters, we're going to reach that goal. We're going to get there. Maybe not fully in this life. Okay, let me say, definitely not fully in this life. But we're going to get there. I'm going to be like him. There's not going to be anything about me that is unchristlike. And I, I don't know about you, but I don't want to waste my life fooling around in worldliness. I want to get a head start. I, I want to pursue him now and chase after him now and strive after him now so that on the last day when he raises me from the die, I can say, this is what I've been striving after my whole life. And it's finally mine. I am like you, O Lord. Oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer. Take comfort in the certainty of the language used in verse 49. As we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. We shall do it. And I may not fully understand how that works. I don't know how to comprehend that in my finite mind, but I sure do believe it. Do you see why Paul spends so much time in 1 Corinthians defending the doctrine of the resurrection? Because the resurrection is the consummation of everything Jesus died and rose again to accomplish. He has not received the full price for which he died until he has you, all of you, 
soul, and body. And he will have you. At the resurrection, he will have all of you because he will raise your body out of the grave, but it won't be the same as when it went in. It will be changed by redeeming grace, perfectly suited for an eternal dwelling in the presence of his divine glory. Father, we thank you for the truth of the resurrection. And we thank you for, Lord, even though you didn't have to, you've given us some information about what it will be like. And as we read this text, Lord, our hearts are just encouraged. My heart is just encouraged. I have to believe these things by faith because I I see myself and my sins and my weaknesses, and I just can't imagine what such an existence will be like. But it's in your word, and we long for it. We look forward to it. And we pray, O Lord, hasten the day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, when he raises us from the dead. Perhaps we'll even be alive at his coming. Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and make these things a reality. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.